We are in uh, Romans chapter 5, and we've been going a little slower than I expected, which is fine. Uh, the last couple weeks we've been looking at the first uh, five verses or so of chapter 5, and uh, today we want to pick it up with verse 6, and, and uh, my goal is to get through verse 11. We'll see how that goes. Let me, let me just read uh, Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses, uh, and that will serve kind of as a reminder, and then we can do our review and, and uh, go on from there. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have obtained our introduction by grace or by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, last week we looked primarily at verses 3 through 5. So look down at those verses again. And uh, let's see, what do, we, what do we remember that we talked about last week in those verses 3 through 5? It's all supposed to be in your brain. Yeah. My brain doesn't hold that. Two weeks ago, we talked about, you asked a question, and I, I don't remember exactly how you worded the question, but it was something along the line of, um, we, uh, based on, uh, I believe it was based on verse 2, where we received our introduction by faith is this grace in which we stand. Could we be taken away from the grace? Or if there's yeah. a point where we don't have it. Mm -hmm. And I answered yes, and somebody else answered no, and you said the right answer was no. And I said it's based on, you know, some, your basic experience that someone has. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if you 
talk more about that? No, we settled it. I want to, once I give an answer, that wow. settles the question. <laughs> you guys are good with that? <laughs> Did you have more you wanted to observe about that? Well, what, what, the reason I answered the question that way is because even though the truth of that statement and the fact that we don't lose or it can't be taken away is true, and, right. and the other answer was, all, was basically the answer you were looking for that's true. Yeah. Our ability to experience that grace yeah. is dependent on us continuing to believe. And yeah, yeah. That's kind of why I was why I answered that. Yeah. When when we falter in faith, we we're not very cognizant of the grace we stand in. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that is true. And so, and, and in fact, this passage that you're I'm expecting you actually to get through part of it <laughs> uh, today. A lot of these. This is all dependent on that. Yeah. And, and you will not experience any of that yeah. without that proper faith. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Great. Now, see, he can go back two weeks. How many of you can go back one week? <laughs> <laughs> what happened yesterday? It's calling us the result in our tribulation. Uh huh. Tribulation. Uh huh. And because we know what level of suffering he did, we don't even know the half of it. Really. Yeah, yeah. We we wonder about what we're going through. But first, uh, we talk about how the exult the, the, the tribulation are actually a test that makes you a stronger Christian. Yeah. Even when we fail, that we learn from that. And move on. Yeah. Yeah. That that uh, that is the striking thing here that he brings out about tribulation, that tribulation, he says, produces or brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about proven character and proven character hope. So, the the point that Paul is making is that whatever tribulations we're going through, uh, they ultimately result in a greater expectation and a greater sense of, of hope and of certainty of of the promises of God and the glory of God and that sort of thing. So, so, and actually what's interesting, you said Paul exhorts us here to exult in our tribulation. Actually, that's not quite what he does. He just says it's a matter of fact, doesn't he? He says we exult in our tribulation, right? And so the question that comes to my mind is this week, how many of you was that true about you this week? Were you exulting in your tribulation? I assume you all had some tribulations this week. Uh, I had a few. And uh, I wasn't always exulting at the time, but but Paul just kind of takes it for granted. And we'll see more of this in, in the passage that we're looking at today, that Paul just takes it for granted a mark of the justified sinner. One of the marks of a justified sinner is his joy or her joy and his his or her exaltation. And he just kind of takes that as a given. And uh, I'm, I'm afraid sometimes in our life it isn't always that much of a given, isn't it? Why is that? <laughs> yeah. And, and as, uh, as uh, uh, Hebrews says, he says, no discipline or tribulation or suffering seems pleasant for the moment. So when we're going through it, it doesn't seem pleasant. Okay. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unpleasant experience. And I think what happens oftentimes when we get into particularly prolonged tribulation is we lose sight of the Lord. 
and that's that's a tragic thing. That's an unfortunate thing that we lose sight of God, and and uh, for uh, at, at times I think fail to really uh, cling to Him like we really ought to in those situations, and then that results in uh, in us not exulting. What else from last week? Remember, we talked about. Uh, what does he mean when he uses the word tribulation here? And we talked about kind of three kinds of tribulation. Do you remember that? What were they? And if you can't remember, try and figure it out. Uh, I can think of a couple. I don't know the third one. Okay. okay. Uh, rivers and streams would be two kinds. That's a bad joke, I know. Yeah, that's a bad joke. So bad it went completely over my head. <laughs> Tribute. Oh, okay. I got it. What are some tribulations? What 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 are some classifications? My jokes are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would actually fit in. Physical, and then there's also some emotional or. Okay, okay. I'm looking for more general categories. I mean, they would fit. Pardon? Persecution. Persecution is one of them, and that would come to our mind immediately. A lot of the tribulations that Paul experienced that he, that he talks about there in Corinthians about being of momentary light affliction were tribulations, beaten times without number, uh, you know, and, and uh, left for stone and left for dead and all those. You know, so there are, there are tribulations we experience that are a result, direct result of our stand for Christ, and that would be persecution. What would be another category of tribulation or difficult part? Okay, and Paul, or excuse me, uh, Peter and James both refer to those as various trials. Okay, so we go through various trials. I just call it stuff. You know, stuff happens happens in life. Okay, all kinds of stuff happens, and Paul even lists uh, some of those things that he encountered. Uh, uh, his sleepless nights, the nights spent in the cold, uh, shipwrecked, uh, you know, all these various things that just happened in the course of life that just because we live in a fallen world. So there's persecution and there's stuff or the various trials. And then there's another kind of suffering that we encounter. This is one we tend to bring on ourselves. Discipline, right. The discipline of God. So, so those were at least three. And I actually, somebody mentioned the fourth one last week. And I don't remember what it was. Something that hadn't come to my mind. And I, and I didn't jot it down, so it wasn't in my notes. I could, can't remember what it was right now. But, but these are kind of three general categories of tribulation that we experience in life. Persecution that comes from our stand for Christ. The discipline in our life that comes because we've... We've uh, disobeyed the Lord or not honored Him, and so He's brought something into our life, some suffering to correct us and, and, and to bring us back into uh, conformity to his, to his character. And then just the stuff of life that happens because we live in a fallen world. Okay? Those are different kinds of tribulation that we experience. And I think, as I understand the passage, I think Paul has all of those things in mind. That and as we go through any one of those experiences, we have reason to exult because we know that God is using those things in our life to develop perseverance and proven character. And that as, as we develop that perseverance and proven character, what happens is we grow in our hope. We grow in, the, in, in, in our 
looking forward to that which ultimately is going to come. We talked about hope being, uh, his use of the word hope uh, being eschatological. In other words, being a reference to the future, being a reference to the end. Okay, So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about that ultimate hope of the salvation of God that comes at, at the end. Okay, so, so he says that we have through tribulation, we have perseverance, we get proven character, and we get hope. And then what does he tell us about that hope? It does not disappoint. Now, what he's, what he's really saying here is, and you've heard this, I'm sure, uh, many times before. In, in the Scriptures, when the Scripture talks about hope, it's not talking about hope as we typically think of. When we typically think of hope, we think of, you know, well, I kind of hope so, okay? Or, or I, I would really like this to happen and it kind of looks like it might happen and so I hope that it will. And oftentimes, sometimes it does, but oftentimes it does not. Okay, and so we all experience hope that disappoints. Actually, this word, and I think some translations actually translate it here, uh, does not put us to shame. Okay, the idea is hoping in something, and then when that hope doesn't materialize, you're kind of almost embarrassed or ashamed that you ever hoped in it in the first place. You know. Uh, there's two primary examples in my own experience that pop immediately into my mind. And one of them was what happened in our recent uh, presidential election. You know, in my experience, uh, there was a particular outcome that I was really hoping for. And it wasn't just that I wanted it, but I really thought it was going to happen. Right. I really, you know, they, you know, they had the polls and everything that suggested that it was Really going to, it would have been a lot easier for me if they'd been telling me for six weeks, this isn't going to happen, folks. You know, then I would have been ready for it. But I was taken completely by surprise. So as I went into election day, I had this anticipation that we were going to get this certain result. It was the result I wanted. And I was really looking forward to the next day and sitting back and relaxing and going, finally, we changed directions. Okay. And it didn't happen that way. And my hope was disappointed. And I was, in a sense, almost ashamed. You know, why did I ever allow myself to believe that that would happen? You know, and so I was disappointed. I was ashamed. Another example was last night watching that Nebraska football game. <laughs> now that <laughs> was a disappointment. You know, I've been reading the articles, you know, about how Nebraska was supposed to win this game and. What was the final score? I never did hear. Well, I gave up. It was 63 to 17 or something, you know. It was absurd, you know. Well, I was hoping, you know, that my team would win. Now I'm thinking about just changing teams. <laughs> but, uh, but we all have experience. And some of them are really important things, things that are really important, like my first example. And some of them are relatively trivial, like my second example. But we all have hopes that disappoint us, right? Sometimes they relate to our health or our family, our children, or our parents or, or friends or uh, our careers or, you know, they just relate to all kinds of things and we're really expecting them and then they disappoint. Paul tells us that this is a hope that does not disappoint. In the end, 
we will not be ashamed that we trusted God and believed in this future. And so that's the idea that he's developing here. And he says one of the reasons, and we talked about this last week, one of the reasons that we know that this hope does not disappoint is because the love of God, he says, has been poured out, already been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And so we talked about this last week, that God has given us the Holy Spirit as the down payment, as the earnest, as that first evidence of what he's ultimately going to do. And as I mentioned last week, we need to remember that when God gave to us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us as this down payment, he wasn't going over onto the shelf and picking something off the shelf that was important to him and bringing it over and giving it to us and saying, here's the down payment. You know what? I'm going to make a down payment on a car if I'm going to buy a new car. I go, you know, I go to my checkbook, I go to the bank and I get some money and that money's not me, that's just money. And I take that money and I give that. And the money's pretty important to me, but it ain't me. Yeah? And I give that money as an earnest. I give that money as a down payment that says, I'm going to come through with this and I'm going to buy this car. Okay. But God doesn't do that. What God gives to us is Himself. The Holy Spirit is God. And so, God has already given to us to indwell within us Himself as a down payment, as an evidence, as proof that in the end, we are going to experience all that glory that He's promised to us. Okay? So that's what Paul's saying. So experientially, we already have an evidence given to us to indwell us that that hope will not be disappointed. Okay, that's Paul's argument up to this point. Then he picks it up in uh, in verse six. And he says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, so what Paul is doing here is he's already argued that this hope that we have of the glory of God is a hope that does not disappoint. And one of the reasons we know it will not disappoint is because we have already experienced the love of God in the gift of His Holy Spirit to us. That's his first point. Okay, So the first kind of concrete evidence we have that this hope will not be disappointed is the experience of God's love. Now, he gives to us a second reason why we know that this hope will not disappoint. The first is the experience of God's love The second is the way God has in the past demonstrated his love to us. Okay, so there's the the gift of his Holy Spirit, the actual experiential sensation or feeling of his love that we have because his Holy Spirit dwells in us. And as that Holy Spirit works in us, as we go through tribulation and we we experience and we recognize God's love and we and we go, well, God really loves me. And so I I know this hope isn't going to disappoint. I know he really is going to come through for me. Okay, that's the first. But the second is, in one sense, even greater. He takes us back and he causes us to think about the greatest demonstration of God's love. 
And the greatest demonstration of God's love is this. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's the ultimate expression of the love of God. Okay. So, he says, while we were still helpless at the right time, and the question is, what does Paul mean by at the right time? Okay. Now, it can be viewed a couple different ways, and, and I think one way is the preferable way here. But when we think of Christ dying at the right time, we can think of it, one, in a kind of a historical sense, and two, we can think of it in a personal sense. Okay? And when I say we can think of it in a historical sense, there's a, there's a clear understanding in, in Christian theology that the actual timing of Christ's death in history was crucial. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul talks about how Christ came in the fullness of time at precisely that point in time that was just exactly right. And people who have studied this point out to us that there are a number of different ways in which Christ coming when he did and dying when he did and rising again from the dead when he did at that particular time in history was absolutely crucial. And there are various, there are various ways that you can, you can look at this. There's, uh, there's the, uh, the kind of the political climate of the day. When, when Christ came uh, to, to die, when he came to live, I've got to keep checking my phone here because my watch died on me, so I've got to check my phone. Uh, when, uh, when Christ came, he came in the middle of a kind of a political environment. And what was the political environment of that time? Okay, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Rome had pretty much taken over that whole part of the world. And, 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 uh, and they had kind of established this, this kind of sort of peaceful situation. So actually, the, the whole region of that part of the world was experiencing a relative amount of peace that was pretty much unknown at any point in, in human history. So there was, a, there was an environment, a context uh, in which uh, it was easier for the gospel to be spread and for people to travel from country to country and from region to region. And one of the reasons for that was because Rome had established all these highways. So it was easier to travel because you, had, you actually had literally paved roads now that you didn't have before. And so there were a lot of things that facilitated the outgoing and the spreading of the gospel that hadn't existed before. Linguistically, it was just exactly right. It was the first time that such a large portion of the world was conversant in a single language, the Greek language. And so the Greek language had pretty much taken over the Mediterranean, uh, the whole Mediterranean world, and, 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 and people all over the Mediterranean world sp spoke and knew Greek. Not everybody did, of course, but, but it was kind of the, it, it, it was the, the language of the, of the day. It was the language through which people communicated and spoke. It's kind of like today. Wherever you travel in the world today, you can almost always find somebody that speaks English. And it facilitates our ability as Americans and English-speaking people to travel because English is so widely used and so widely understood. Last uh, weekend when we were at my daughter's place down in, in Texas for Thanksgiving, she had her neighbors come across to visit for a couple hours. Uh, a father and, uh, and her... His, 
her daughter, a father and his daughter, and uh, they were from Iran. Uh, he had lived in, he'd lived in the States for about 14, 15 years, and he had just brought his daughter over. And so they were sitting there on the couch. She'd just been here a few months, and she spoke perfectly good English, very easy for us to understand. And we were asking her how she knew English so well. Well, she'd been learning in Iran since she was like uh, in the seventh grade or something. She'd been studying English, even though she comes from Iran. And so she could speak and converse with us quite easily. Well, in time of Christ, Greek was that language. And so it facilitated, of course, the communication of the gospel. So we have all these letters of the New Testament, which were originally written in Greek, even though they were written to all kinds of different peoples and different people groups. So you have letters written to the Ephesians and you have letters written to the Corinthians and you have letters written to the Romans. You have letters and they're all written in Greek. Okay, so you have all these different uh, factors that play into how critical it was that Christ come when he did. Ideologically, the fact that the Greek language had permeated that whole part of the world also means that Greek culture and Greek ideology had permeated. So it was easier to communicate because people tended to think culturally the same. So when you get into John chapter 1, and in John chapter 1, John writing, who is a Jew, is writing about the Logos becoming flesh. That was a concept that resonated in the Greek mind resonated all over the Greek-speaking world. They understood what he was talking about when he was talking about the Logos. And, and uh, nationally, for Israel, this was a very critical time. This was really the end of Israel as we know it, right? They were within a few years. God's judgment was coming. And when God's judgment came, the records of all the genealogies and all that sort of thing were going to be destroyed. If you were going to have the Christ come, he had to come now. This was the end of the genealogical record of Israel from a human point of view. We would never have known if Jesus was the Christ if we did not have those records. So it was critical that he come before 70 A.D. when God's judgment was ultimately finally going to fall on Israel uh, for their rejection of him. So there are all these different factors that make it the right time for Christ to come and die. And even though I spent all this time talking about that, I don't think that's what he means here. There are actually two words in Greek for, that we translate as time. There's the word kairos and the word chronos, okay? the word from which we get chronology. Okay? And they really have two different kind of ideas to them. Why do they run the air conditioner on the 2nd of December? Let me scoot over here. Because uh, it's warm. Yeah, because it's warm. Okay. Uh, you have Krinos and you have Kronos, or Kronos and Kronos. And Kronos is kind of just the general idea of time. Okay? It's kind of just speak of time in general. Okay? Or the passing of time. Okay? And hence we get the word chronology. Okay? But... The word cross has, a, has a, a sense to it of a specific time or an opportune time or the appropriate. It, it, it's really more of a pinpointed time. OK, so so we could just speak about, you know, we're all the age we are just because of the passing of time in the general sense. Or we could talk about the fact that this afternoon at five o'clock, the church has an appointment to have 
the mission's banquet, okay? That's a specific time, okay? And so we refer, you refer to an appointment as the specific time. That's the word that Paul uses here, is this word that's specified, why it's translated here, at the right time. But the question is, does he mean the right time in the historical sense that we meant, that I, that I just described, or does he, does he mean it in, uh, in a, what we would call the personal sense? And I would suggest to you that the context pretty strongly indicates that that is how he means it. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 8, he says, For while, notice the word while, we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, he says, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in verse 10, he says, for while we were enemies. So the emphasis, the emphasis is not on this kind of historical context of it being the right time for Christ to die. But in this particular passage, the focus is, is on how it was the right time for us personally. And when was that time? What was characteristic for all of us about the time that Christ died for us personally? We were helpless. We were ungodly. We were sinners. We were enemies. He uses all four of those words to describe that time in our life when Christ died for us. Christ died for us when we were helpless. There's nothing we could do to help ourselves. Christ died for us when we were, in that same verse, he says, ungodly. Then later he says, Christ died for us while we were sinners. We were reconciled to God when we were sinners. And then finally he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So the emphasis of the passage is on this idea that there was a time in our lives when we were in rebellion against God, when we were God's enemies, when there was nothing we could do to help ourselves, when we were sinners. All of those things were true about us. And it was at that time that Christ died for us. Now, why is it that Paul goes to such lengths, and he says it over and over again here, as I just pointed out. He says it, he points, over, points it out over and over again to us, this idea of when Christ died for us was when we were in this condition. Why is that important to Paul's argument? Okay. Maybe, maybe not. Okay. And this is the contrast. Okay. Okay. What Paul is doing here is he's kind of he's kind of flipped a typical rabbinic uh, way of arguing. Oftentimes, in fact, we even do it uh, in Western culture even today. We have a way of arguing where we argue from the lesser to the greater. So we establish something that's true that's kind of a lesser thing and then from that lesser thing we extrapolate out and say, well, if this is true then this greater thing is probably also true. Okay? And that was that's a typical way of arguing and it was very typical among the rabbis. But what Paul has done here is he's reversed it. And here in this particular passage, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser, if I can use that term. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. And so, 
in verse 7, he gives to us the lesser. And the lesser that he gives to us is the greatest extent of what we think of as human love. What is the greatest extent of human love? According to, according to Jesus. Okay? We die for who? Greater love has no man than this that he what? Lay down his life for his friends. Right? Jesus, Jesus acknowledges there in John that the greatest love that we have is when we die for our friends. Or as Paul says here, we die for a righteous man or perhaps for a good man some would dare even to die. Now, uh, commentators make a big thing of trying to debate whether Paul is using righteous and good as two separate things, one greater than the other, or whether or not he's just using them synonymously. And I'm going, why does it matter? His point is that whatever the case, whether... You know, the good man is really better than the righteous man in our eyes or vice versa. OK, we can debate that and argue that. And maybe that's something to, to think about. But the point that Paul's making is that's the extent of human love. That's as far as we go, folks. We don't die for people we don't like. Right. We don't die for our enemies. Now, there are all kinds of examples. They are still rare, but there are a number of examples of people who die for others. Right? And we hear stories about it all the time in the military and stuff like that. But how often do you hear a story, a guy comes back from war and, he, and, and you hear him telling the story about how his buddy died for his enemy on the other side of the line? You don't hear that, do you? The extent of human love, the greatest concept we have of human love is when somebody lays down their life for their friend. And that's pretty rare. That's really rare. So Paul says, well, you know, it'll hardly ever happen. Perhaps maybe somebody would dare even to die. But let me escalate it a little bit. Because I think most of us could maybe imagine being willing to die for a friend. Somebody we really loved and cared for. Or being willing to die for somebody that was really good. But for those of you who are parents, how many of you would be willing to decide to let your child die? For that person. How many of you would be willing to allow your son or daughter, more than allow, to ask your son or daughter to die for somebody you thought was good? That takes it up another level, doesn't it? It helps us realize how profound this thing is we're talking about. Because we're, we're talking about the father asking the son to die. So we're talking about a love that's at a pretty high level, but now we're going to now we're really going to ratchet it up. Cuz he says, but God demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So now we have this picture of God's love that is not merely that God waited for us to get our act together. God waited for us to come to terms with Him and to get at peace with Him. God waited for us to live righteously. And then when we finally got our act together, when we finally lifted ourselves up by our own bootstraps and made ourselves good and put ourselves at peace with God, then He said, okay, now I'll do it. No. Paul says, while we were helpless... While we were sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were enemies. See, he says it four times. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. So not only do we have someone dying for somebody else, which is remarkable. Not only do we have Someone asking for his child, his son, to die for someone else. Which is even more remarkable. But we have someone asking his son to die for his enemies. That's what we have in the love of God. That's what we have in the death of Christ on the cross. That when I was dead set against God, when I wanted nothing to do with God, when I, when I was at war with God, now, for many of us, like I said in the last couple of weeks, we didn't even know we were, but in reality we were. We were at war with God. We wanted to walk our own way, do our own thing. We wanted Him just to stay away and not bug us, but just give us all the goodies. You know, Give us the Christmas presents. But other than that, leave us alone. We were at war with God. And every time He interfered with our lives, every time He said, no, this is what I want, we go, no, I don't want that. We were at war with God. And it was at that moment, at the right time, when I was helpless, that God sent His only beloved Son to die in order that I might be justified and reconciled to Him. Now, why does Paul make that contrast? He has argued that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through His Holy Spirit. He has argued that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He has shown us the contrast of that with human love to show us how great is the love of God. And that is, incidentally, not to downplay the greatness of human love. It is a great thing when someone lays down their life for a friend. That's a great thing which makes it even greater that God does it for his enemies. Okay, So, he's done all that, but why has he done that? Why has he drawn this contrast? Why has he tried to emphasize so much for us this idea of this amazing love of God? In order that he can say, in verse 9, much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of sin, much more, 
having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What Paul is arguing here is this same idea of the certainty of the hope. Okay, remember in last week's lesson, he talked about hope does not disappoint. How do I know hope does not disappoint? Well, one way I know hope does not disappoint is because I've already got a down payment. I've got the Holy Spirit, so I know I'm going to get this hope. But another way that that I know that this hope is absolutely certain and sure that I am going to share in the glory of God. One way I know this absolutely for sure is because when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And if I was reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more will I share in his life? In other words, if God was willing to do this for me when I was his enemy, if he was willing to do that for me, then why would I think at this point after he's brought me this far, that he's going to abandon me and my hope is going to be put to shame. Or I'm going to be disappointed. You know, the world laughs at us because of the things we believe, don't they? The world laughs at us. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm currently working right now on a paper uh, for Roundtable on the subject of naturalism. Uh, and... And so I'm, you know, I'm thinking a lot and reading a lot about what the world says about what we believe as Christians. And how they, uh, you know, how they explain how a, how, how a naturalist, using naturalist in the sense of a metaphysical naturalist, not somebody who likes nature, that's, that's another kind of naturalist, but I'm talking about a naturalist who believes in naturalism as a as a Religion, if you will, is a metaphysical outlook, a philosophical outlook. But, but how does the naturalist or the person who believes in naturalism explain religion? How do they explain Christianity? And they say, well, it's just something we made up. It's something, you know, we just kind of conjured up. And when all is said and done and we get to the end of our life and we die, of course, we're going to be dead. That's it. That's the end. So... You're not going to be ashamed because you're going to be dead. You're going to be gone. You're not going to exist anymore. But if you could see just a moment past death, you would be ashamed that all your life you'd believe this myth about God and Christ and all that sort of stuff. Okay? That's our alternative, folks. That's the alternative that evolution presents to you. That's the alternative that naturalism gives to you. There's no hope. How do I know for sure? How do I know for sure that my hope is not going to be disappointed? I know for sure that my hope is not going to be disappointed. I know for sure that when I die, at the end, in the eschatos, at the end, that I am not going to be under the wrath of God. I'm not going to experience the judgment of God. I'm not going to be cast away from His presence. I know that because I know that when I was still an enemy of God, He gave His life for me. And if He gave His life for me when I was His enemy, how much more now that I am His friend, now that I am 
in love with him. Now that I have been justified and declared righteous, how much more now that the full price has been paid and the only thing left that God has to do is let me share in his life, how much more then can I expect and know that that's going to be the end? That's going to be the result. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Not to, not to portray <laughs> the eschatos and, and the end and the glory as lesser. I mean, it's a great thing. But, but as far as the difficulty is concerned, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's arguing from the greatness of God's love and demonstrating his love toward me while I, while I was an enemy with God demonstrating his love towards me now that I am his friend. Now that I am reconciled. Now that I am in peace with God. So, if in fact God loved me so much to do this for me, then I know he's going to do this. Now, the problem is, we have this expression. We talk about pouring good money after bad, right? You ever done that? <laughs> okay. We don't like to do it, do we? But we have this car, okay? And we want to make it last a little longer, you know, another year or two, you know. And the air conditioner goes out and you go, well, you know, I'm just not ready to trade it in yet. So you, so you put in a new compressor, you know. And about three weeks after you get the new compressor in, the fuel injection system goes out. So you take it back to the mechanic and he fixes the fuel injection system, well, good. Maybe it'll last me a couple of years until I'm ready to buy a new one. You know, and then you know, about six weeks later, the transmission goes out. Any one of these things by itself, you could justify spending money for, right? But after a while, you start going, "I'm pouring good money after bad. I'm pouring money down a hole." And we think there's a point at which we got to draw the line. Say, "That's it. Okay, yeah. All I have to do now is." fix the bearings on the right rear wheel, but I've already spent so much money and this car's falling apart and so I'm going to cut my losses and I'm going to quit spending money. And the problem is we think that that's how God thinks about us. We think that God just gets fed up with us. We think that God thinks, well, I've spent so much I just can't spend any more on this person. And so we begin to lose hope. But God doesn't cut his losses. Because God has already paid it in full when you were still an enemy. He already paid the full price. God doesn't have to pay any more. There's nothing more that God has to pay to ensure that you experience His glory. He already paid it all. He already paid it all. So you don't have to worry about God cutting His losses with you. You don't have to worry about God pouring good money after bad. He already poured it after the bad and He did it because He loved you. And if He loved you so much, 
that he would die or allow his son to die in order that you could be reconciled to him. Now that you are reconciled to him and he no longer has to die for you, all he has to do is let you share in his life. Is that not what he will do? That's Paul's argument. He develops it again in Romans 8 when he says, He that did not spare his own son, will he not with him also freely give us all things? And so we get to that point where we realize how much God loves us, how great is God's love for us, how it's already all been paid, how our future is secure, and what is the result. We return to this theme of exaltation. Remember in verse 2, we exulted in hope of the glory of God. In verse 3, he says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. And now in verse 11, he says, and not only this, but we exult in what? In God. In God. In God. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to play super spiritual games here, okay? But it, you know, it's one thing to exult in hope, and it's another thing to exult in tribulation, but it's another thing altogether to exult in God. And the, and the mark, the characteristic of a person who is justified by God, the justify, the mark of the justified sinner is that he or she exults in God. Because now I am reconciled to Him. You see, before I was reconciled to God, I couldn't exult in Him, could I? Before I was at peace with God, I didn't sit around thinking about how great God was and how cool I thought that was and telling Him about how cool I thought He was. But now that I've been reconciled through Christ, that's what he means, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because Christ has now reconciled me to God, that's what I do. Do you? Sit around thinking about how cool God is? I, you know, I don't want to pretend I'm something I'm not. I don't do this all the time. I don't even do it most of the time. But there are times in my life when I just spend time thinking about how cool God is. Exalt in God. And I made a list. Now, this is that time of year when you make a list and check it twice. But what's your list of the things about God that you exalt in? Now, let me draw a distinction. Again, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to imply that, that the other's not good, but... We oftentimes thank God when He does nice things for us, right? Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But that's good. Scripture is very emphatic about how important Thanksgiving is. Okay? The psalmist says, You enter His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. So Thanksgiving is only one part of it. The other part of it is praise. And when I think of praise... I, you know, I'm not trying to be legalistic here or anything, so don't 
don't don't take this to extreme. But when I think of praise, I kind of draw a line between praise and thanksgiving. And and there are times when I'm with the Lord, when I know what I really need to do is I need to get past thanksgiving and move to praise. Because what I want to do is I want to focus on what He is and how cool and good that is. And it's out of what He is that all of His gifts to me flow. So I thank Him for all the things He gives, partly because of what it means to me, but also partly because of what it says about Him. But ultimately, in exulting in God, I think we ought to, at times, in our, in our times with God, take time just to reflect on what He is and tell Him how cool we think that is. His power his eternality. You know, this is one that'll bend your mind. Scientists talk about scientists talk about the edge of the universe. Okay? And when they talk about the edge of the universe, they mean the edge of time and space, right? Because that's what the universe is. It's time and space and some other stuff, right? So what do you have when you get past space? can't handle that, can you? I can't. You know, because we think, well, when you, you know, when you get so far out and there's nothing, no things out there, there's still space. But there's a place out there where there's no more space. Except it's not a place because there's no space. Right? God's out there. Because God is outside of time and space. That's why we say He is from everlasting to everlasting. We don't mean by that that God has always in time, and always go back in time and keep going back and events. You get back to the beginning of time, and there's God, and that's where He starts. No. No. God's outside of time. Have you ever praised Him for that? Have you ever exalted God because He is eternal? That He's outside of time and space? Have you exalted God because of His graciousness, because of His holiness? When we talk about God's holiness, we mean two things. One, we mean His sinlessness. And the other thing, we mean His separateness. That He's separate from everything He's created. It goes back to the first thing. I said, you exalt God for His wisdom, for His patience, for His personality, for His beauty, for His creativity, for His kindness, for His wrath. And we can go on and on and on of all the different things that we can exalt in God. Okay, we're out of time. Go home and exult in the Lord.